0: And one of the reasons I like discussing history is I think it does a couple things. One, it can introduce different doctrinal concepts in kind of a non-confrontational way. You're not just ramming somebody uh, right away and saying, you're wrong and I'm right. You can understand the development of ideas, uh, how things happen. Um, And pastorally, I have a a real concern, as we think through our own church life, through our own personal lives... um, There's really a a, a ditch on either side of the road, and I think the the culture we're trying to create here is, uh, on the one side, we want to be confident in the scriptures, we want to be confident in the way we understand the scriptures, in, you know, confessional, uh, rock-ribbed Christianity, we want to be confident in that, and at the same time, not in a sectarian way. It's important to understand other Christians from other traditions, And how did they get there? You know, what was happening in their world that led them to this conclusion, or to this practice, uh, or that? And so this this idea of, you know, what some call reformed Catholicity, you know, we're not trying to find unity by just lowering, you know, lowest common denominator approach. We want to actually be convictional people, both in terms of doctrine and in practice. Uh, But we don't want to be fussers, okay? We don't want to be sectarians where anyone who disagrees on any point with me uh, must be a heretic. We want to be generous, and we want to be rock-ribbed in our understanding. Does that make sense? Okay. Do we feel like, you know, and and maybe this is a rhetorical question for each one of us, uh, because we're all going to be at different places, but as we think about these things, I would encourage all of us to think through, how is God instructing me? Am I the sectarian who needs to learn how to just chill a little bit and understand that there's people from other traditions that are also part of God's kingdom, right? God's kingdom is big. Or are you the indifferent person who maybe needs to learn conviction, <laughs> courage in your convictions? History is on uh, our side, right? There, we can have confidence in our confession. We can have confidence in, uh, in the way we're doing things. And so we want to avoid both those ditches and find a happy way uh, to be uh, convictional and gracious both. Uh, And so to me, that's one of the great values of teaching history, is to see it's not clean. Okay? Uh, There's all kinds of interesting people that we love that have faults, uh, and it's no different today. Okay? There's still characters in the church today. Does that make sense? And are these, some of these little historical detours that we've taken, has that, has that been helpful to understand where we're at in history? How other people have gotten to where they're at? Okay. And I happily take those detours, but we do want to make it through our confessions. So if you want to turn in your booklets to page 28, we'll pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that is on chapter 10, uh, section 4, which is the last section in the effectual calling chapter So page 28 in your booklet, chapter 10, section 4. We had started working through it. We'll pick up where we left off last. So this section says, Those who are not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved, because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. They may even be called by the ministry of the Word and may receive some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. So last time we got through the footnotes, uh, the the texts from footnote number 12, so we're going to pick it up from there uh, and uh, look at those from uh, note 13. So I will assign those here. And then we'll read it and go through that. Who wants to take Matthew 22, verse 14? Who's willing to read that for us? Howard. Matthew 13, 20, and 21. Who's willing to take that? Tim. And then Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. Who's willing to take that? Ray. Ray. Okay. So then let's work through this. They may even be called by the ministry of the word and may receive some ordinary working of the spirit without being saved. Go ahead, Howard, on Matthew 22. Okay. So there's a distinction there between those who are outwardly called, and this whole chapter is on effectual calling, right? So uh, an easy way to think about this, if you go back in the days... You go to a Billy Graham crusade and there's 60,000 people sitting in an arena, every last one of them hears the gospel, right? And therefore, every last one of them gets saved, right? Right? No. No. There's the inward call of the gospel, when the Holy Spirit is making someone be born again, and that happens to some and not others, okay? And it happens at a point in time, okay? Okay? So many are called, in fact, all are called. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So it's not just an invitation, it's a command. You must repent of your sins, okay? You must bend the knee to King Jesus, and not everybody does, okay? The outward call, you hear with your ears. The inward call, the Holy Spirit makes your heart new so that you respond to the call, okay? And so not everyone who hears the gospel cares, not everyone who hears the gospel will repent of their sin. Okay? So does that outward call and inward call distinction, does that make sense? Hearing is not the same as believing. Okay? Then let's go on. Matthew 13, 20 and 21. Okay, so we've just have been preaching through that, these parables, okay? So there's the kind of hearer who responds immediately, right? And then it says, because the root of the matter is not in him, he's not genuinely converted, he just makes an outward profession, outward excitement, whatever, uh, and when the tests and trials come, he's gone, okay? And in our experience, we probably all know of instances uh, like that, where someone makes a profession of faith, it looks good, looks promising, and then boom, they're gone. What happened? What happened? Well, Jesus says the root of the matter wasn't in them. Um, and we'll discuss that a little bit more in relation to uh, Hebrews 6. And Ray, you had that, Right? Okay, so here we have a picture of people who by every observable measure are in the church, right? They've heard the preaching, they've tasted the heavenly gift, which I think, I won't be dogmatic on this, but I think is the Lord's Supper, okay? They've, they've taken the elements, they're part of church life, everything looks good, but again, the root of the matter is not in them. These are external Christians, Okay, so they're part of the covenant people of God, but they themselves uh, are not believers. Okay, they're hardened. And it it turns out that they're blasphemers who, who walk away. Okay, and so the confession here summarizes this whole thing. It says, they may even be called by the ministry of the word and may receive some ordinary working of the spirit without being saved. So what this is saying is we all know that there's false professors. We've probably all experienced that, that people walk away for good from the church um, because I think the Bible quite clearly teaches that justification cannot be lost. That means that there is something happening in these people that puts them in the church even though they are not justified and their final apostasy shows, what does Jesus say? Get away from me, I Knew you for about three years, and then you apostatized, and now I forgot you. Right? That's what Jesus says? No. What does Jesus say? I never knew you. That whole time you were in church, I did not know your name. Because it was a show. Okay? The root of the matter was not in you. Yes, you were in the building, but you were not in my church. Okay? That would be another way to think of it. And so this is a stern warning against hypocrisy, against outward profession without the root of the matter you know, being in you. And that's a, a, a sober thing, but it's true. Um, you know, and some biblical examples would be, let's say, someone like Judas, right? If you're, if you're walking before Judas' betrayal, this guy looks like a believer among believers, right? Not only is he... Uh, walking with Jesus, but he's in the 12. And not only that, he's the treasurer of the 12. This guy is like super, super pious. He's for sure saved, right? Jesus says he was a devil from the beginning. There was no point in Jesus' ministry ever at which Judas was saved. He was a devil from the beginning. Okay? He was a hell-bound sinner the whole time he was ministering alongside Jesus. And... Yes, as Christians, we can and should have assurance, but this is a, a stern warning against false assurance. Do Some of the older people remember a gentleman by the name of Charles Templeton. Does that name sound familiar to anyone? Mr. Weeb, can I put you on the spot? What, what do you remember of Charles Templeton, or do you just remember the name? Uh, because my memory is so bad, He was an evangelist, Yep. Yes, yep. Charles Templeton was, uh, I believe he was actually Canadian. Kind of a cohort of Billy Graham during those evangelistic crusades. And Charles Templeton became an atheist. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like three degrees from famous. My My aunt's uncle knew Charles Templeton. Wow, I feel famous. Okay. Yeah, so if you didn't hear, Evangeline just said her her dad and uncle knew Charles Templeton. And I'm going to say this was probably 60s, 50s maybe, 40s even? Okay. Okay. So what? how do you understand something like that? What's going on? Well, and this is saying that some may even be called by the ministry of the word and may receive some ordinary working of the spirit without being saved. Okay? So... The Spirit can work in people, also sometimes in a non-saving way, okay? It's not like the Spirit's only activity is regeneration. Um, The Spirit can gift people for a certain task, right? Like uh, Aholiab and, I always forget the other guy, in Exodus 31, building the temple, right? And I'm not saying they're not regenerate, but they were gifted for a certain task, to build the temple, Um, There's a question about whether Saul, King Saul, was regenerate or not. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, But it's possible that Saul was anointed to be king, and God was even with him as he was king. But it's possible he was unregenerate. And yet the Spirit of God was helping him with his task. Okay? This is a category we have to allow for. God is sustaining people to do certain tasks even if they are not uh, regenerate. Okay, and that's what this is talking about. Questions on this? Do those categories make sense? Lisa. Okay, great question. So Lisa's asking, and I think this goes to Evangeline's point a little bit. If you have a minister who is not saved, can people be saved under the preaching, under his preaching? My answer is yes, Absolutely. Okay, uh, Paul talks about ministers who preach out of vain ambition. Okay, and I'm guessing that's at least part of what's behind unregenerate ministers. Maybe they're great public speakers, you know, maybe they're great intellectuals and they enjoy the gamesmanship of teaching doctrine, even though they, it's not in them, it's a game, they're logicians, um, or, yeah, or, or they're just gifted public speakers. Uh, but Paul, what does Paul say? Paul says, just leave them alone, okay? God may save people even if they're preaching with wrong motives. He may do it, okay? Uh, Part of the reason that's an interesting point is because we do the exact opposite of what the Bible says today, okay? We let heresy pass because someone's heart is in the right place, okay? Paul says, those are divisive people. They need to be shut up. I don't care about their motives. If they're teaching falsehood, stop them. And then we say, "Well, no, you know what? Um, he's preaching the truth, but his, you know, he's kind of a grump, so we should shut him up." And Paul says, "No, no, he's preaching the truth. Let him be." Right? Paul's saying the actual subject matter matters more than the person's intentions. And what do we say in our culture? All that matters is someone's intentions. Yeah, he's a heretic. Yeah, and technically he's wrong on the Trinity, and technically he denies substitution. But he's a really nice guy, and he really means well. Right? What's that? And he's got good hair and skinny jeans and a V-neck that goes down so far. Just let this guy go. Right? (laughs) That's what we do in our culture. But that's exactly the opposite instincts of what the Bible says. Okay? The Bible says if the truth is being preached, God will sort that guy out at the end. Okay? And the Bible says, no matter how bad, you know, or how good his intentions are, if he's preaching falsehood, grab the shepherd's hook and yank him off the stage left. Okay? Um, But yes, people can be saved. Uh, And there's actually, among the Puritans, there's lots of stories. One of the things that drove the Puritans was, many of them felt that the vast majority of the clergy were unsaved. It was a good job to have. To be a clergyman was a good job. paid reasonably. There was job security. You were respected. uh, And so they felt one of the problems was maybe 10 or 15 percent of the clergy are even saved. Okay? This was a big problem um, for them. And so that's entirely possible. And yet some of these great giants of the faith were converted under the preaching of people who they felt were unregenerate. And yet God still used it. So, uh, yeah, we have to be careful in how, <laughs> how we think through some of these categories. Anything else on this? Vern. What would the Holy Spirit's role be? In which part? That an unregenerate man would want to preach, or that people would be converted under that preaching? Yeah, so Vern's asking, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in this? And if someone's preaching and converting people, isn't the Holy Spirit involved in that? And I'd say yes. And I'd say in the way that this is calling attention to. They may be called to an outward task, even though the root of the matter isn't in them. King Saul may be gifted to lead wisely and bless God's people for a season. And I'm not going to say whether Saul was regenerated or not. I don't know. But assuming he wasn't, his ministry for a time still blessed the people. Uh, And I think in periods where there's been a large number of unregenerate ministers, I think the same thing. God is providentially using them to convert his sheep. But that's a blessing for those sheep. But it's a harsher judgment for the minister or for the evangelist. Right? His judgment will be harsher than if he had just gone into being an electrician. He should have been an electrician. Right? It won't be good for him that he was a minister. His judgment will be harder. But how, how and why the Spirit of God providentially orders things like that... I, Yeah, because the, the, the Holy Spirit, I mean, he's, he's operating in the shadows very much in the Old Testament. He's there, but he's in the shadows, whereas the floodlight comes on in the New Testament, right? After Pentecost, for sure, we see quite vividly how the Spirit works. Judas wasn't around for that, but, uh, but I'd say the principle still, the change isn't that now the Holy Spirit starts working. And he wasn't working in the Old Testament. The change is we see his work, right? I, I think the Holy Spirit was creating faith in the saints like Abram, just the same as he is now. They just didn't understand it the way we, right? The, the floodlight's on for us, but the work, I, th- I still think the work isn't different. I think Abram needed the Holy Spirit to, to have faith and believe God's promises, for example. Um, but yeah, how that works, what happens in those people's minds—that I, how self-deception works—I I have no idea, and I hope, I'm, yeah, I hope to not find out <laughs> how self-deception works. But it, it's clearly a thing. Yeah. Anything else on this? I think we can know we have eternal life. I think the Bible tells us to have assurance. I think the dividing line is, let's go back to Matthew 7, those people who have false assurance, right? So there's four categories of people. Three of them are very simple. There's those who are unsaved and know they're unsaved. Simple. There's those who are saved and know they're saved. Simple. Okay. There's those who are saved and don't know they are saved. That's a pastoral struggle. How do you help those people grow into assurance? But the most difficult category is the unsaved people who know for sure that they're saved. That's the most difficult category of people. Okay, People on their way to hell who have the assurance of salvation. That's a tough one. But I think when you go to Matthew 7, it's telling what these people say. What do, let's go to Matthew 7. I think it's about verse 20 or 21 maybe. Yeah, 21. Okay. Note closely how this works. Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. couple things. The first problem is they get to God's judgment seat. And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And their answer starts with the word me. <laughs> Big problem. Look what I did. I did this, I did this, I did this. And then worse yet... The things that they're pointing to is kind of circus show stuff and not actual piety. Okay? It doesn't say, look at the way I love my wife. It doesn't say, look at the way I grew in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I did signs and wonders. I prophesied. I cast out demons. Okay? I was the star of the show. And to God be the glory. Right? Just like the Pharisee who's praying, Right? He even, with his mouth, he gives God the glory. Thank you, God. Right? I'm giving all, God all the glory that I'm not like one of those low people over there. Their mouth is making them a liar. These people are deceived. They seemingly expect to get in. I think these people are in for a real surprise. They probably really believe it. But again, what's the basis of their faith? Look at me. 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 What does a Christian say when he gets into God's courtroom? What does a Christian say? Why should I let you in? What's what's your plea? Jesus. Okay? I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, you're in. If you plead, look what I did. I got the gift of prophecy. I, there was this one exorcism I even did once at camp, when all the kids were crying and there was emotions, and it, God, I, I don't care. Go to hell. That's what God tells those people. It's scary stuff. This is the most frightening verse in the whole Bible to me, is that you have people at that level of deception, but I don't think that should or needs to take away from our assurance. If you are trusting in Christ rather than in your works, that's the test of assurance. If you're actually trusting in Christ, you can know that you are saved. You can know truly that you're going to heaven. If you're looking at yourself and your accomplishments and your gifts, you're on very dangerous ground. And you need to get right with the Lord. Okay, so Evangeline is saying, what's the difference between falling away and doubt? Okay, I think falling away, you're talking in a final sense. Yeah, so like actual apostasy, like these people, right, who die on the wrong side of God. Um, if you die in a final state of being away from God, I don't think you were ever saved or had true assurance can genuinely saved people have doubts? Absolutely. I know many who do. I know many saints who have died that I have every reason to believe were saved and struggled right to the moment of death. I'm not sure some of them ever got assurance. But the good news is the strength of your assurance isn't what gets you into heaven or not. <laughs> right? The root of the matter. Did they actually have their faith in Christ? Right? And I love the word picture of... Um, that the objective reality of something is different than our confidence in it, right? Let's say you find your your little old grandma who's never flown on a flight before. I've used this analogy before. And she gets on a commercial flight, and she's going to Boston. She's never flown, and she's scared the whole way. She doesn't know she's going to make it. You know, she's white-knuckling it the whole way through because she's never been on a plane before. But she's in good hands, right? There's two trained pilots. This plane has been safety checked many times. She will get there. And her level of fear and doubt has zero impact on the safety of that journey being completed. And then you go back and you look at all these grainy black and white photos of the Wright brothers and people before them who failed 150,000 times flying with their wing contraptions off a cliff and they're all cocksure and brave and this one's going to work, right? Well, their confidence has absolutely no bearing on the fact that they're face planting, right? Right? Because it's not the strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith. If your faith, if you have a weak and unstable faith in an actual savior, you're saved. If you have a tremendous amounts of cocksure confidence in a false deity, the, the strength of your faith doesn't save you, the object of your faith saves you. Okay? And that's why I'm always troubled when people say, oh, you just got to have faith. Just have faith. Well, that's true, but faith in what? Faith in yourself? Well, that's not good. We just read that. That's not good. Faith in faith? Is faith a magical thing? Do you have faith in faith? Do you have faith in luck? Do you, or do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Right? Yeah. But I would want to always assure doubting people that that doesn't mean you're not a saint because you have doubts. Okay? It, And I I would love for all Christians to have assurance. But the fact of the matter is we all know people either for a season or sometimes right up to the finish line. This is part of a thorn that they seem to have to bear. Oh boy, okay. (laughs) Inga and then Lisa and then we should probably bring it in for a landing. Yep. Yeah. Amen. So if you didn't hear Angus talking about the Pilgrim's Progress, which you ladies are studying, absolutely wonderful story. And there are some heart wrenching turns, right? The Slough of Despond or at the river. <laughs> I won't spoil it for you. What a great scene. Lisa. Okay. Then let's close in prayer. lord god i want to thank you for your uh, revealed word thank you that you have spoken that you have not been silent uh, but that you have given us the deposit of your mind and we find that in holy scripture lord this is actually you actually speaking to us and i pray that we would be uh, glad recipients and happy doers of your word lord i pray for anyone here this morning that can have assurance, that should have assurance, but that has doubts, Lord, I pray that you would press the gospel deep into their hearts, that they would know, that they can know, that they know you. Lord, and if there are some who still need to take that step, who maybe are fooling themselves, Lord, I pray that that you would also drive the truth of your word in there and work. And remove that heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. And I pray that those two would walk in assurance, that they would walk in confidence, that we can know that if our faith is in you, there is nothing that can separate us from your love, even our doubts, even our struggles. And even as we've heard in the testimonies this morning, when we have to walk through difficult seasons with health or with family or with disappointments, even with other Christians, Lord, you are there and you are carrying us through. I pray that you'd be with us uh, the rest of this morning. I pray that you would uh, make our hearts alive as we prepare to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would press the truth of your word into our hearts, uh, that we would not be hearers only, but also doers of your word. That we would be confident in what you have uh, taught and also gracious uh, to others who may be struggling or at different places along uh, the journey. Be with us now, we pray. Amen.